Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you. I hope our listeners are doing well and are staying safe out there. Thanks, Rich. You look pretty good yourself. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by a dear friend, long-term collaborator in so many different endeavors, Ambassador Capricia Marshall. She's a diplomatic expert uh, who served at the highest levels of the U.S. government and the White House and the State Department and elsewhere, and we're really thrilled to have her with us today. Yeah, Kurt, we're, we're excited. Ambassador Marshall served as Chief of Protocol for the United States from 2009 to 2013. In this position, she served on the front lines of diplomacy, facilitating high-level interactions between heads of state and executing numerous events hosted by the vice president, the secretary of state, the president, senior U.S. officials. Capricia, we are thrilled to have you on. Thank you both so very much. It's such a pleasure to see you and to join you. And we're thrilled about your book. We have so much to talk about, but maybe we should just jump right in on the book. Tell us about it. Tell us what it's called. How is it doing? And how did you even think of this idea? Well, I'm very excited about my book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How It Can Work for You. The idea when I left the State Department in my position as Chief of Protocol in 2013, it came from meeting people and particularly in uh, the private sector who had lost really the inability to connect. They didn't know how to develop those strong relationships with one another. And we were becoming a more divided community rather than creating those strong relationships that can move us, whether it's in government, in the private sector, or in your individual capacity. And I thought about everything that I had done at the highest levels in our government, for the president, for the secretary of state, that my job was really to create a connectivity between our country and others around the world. And how did I do that? And so I reflected on the various lessons that I had learned and also the tools that I had developed, both as social secretary and as chief of protocol. And I might add, I'm the only individual who ever served in both capacities and decided to put pen to paper and to write out those lessons and tools and to accompany them with funny anecdotes so that, um, or not always funny, some of them are actually quite serious, but with anecdotes that would teach the lesson, would really showcase why the lesson was important. And, and hopefully then that people will walk away with some valuable information that they can, they can use in developing their own relationships. Well, I think that's what's fabulous about the book. Yes, it's about stories of diplomacy and presidential you know, meetings, but it's also, it's also like a how-to book about how to improve your own life. It's about how to improve your own business. And so I, I found it to be fascinating, so interesting, and like things that I will now change on a daily basis. And I was joking with you guys earlier about how my colleague and co-host of this show, Kurt Campbell, has a very similar commitment to what you did every day in the chief of protocols office. And I, Kurt, I will never forget my first day in the Asia group. Three years ago in the summer, we were having a meeting and the meeting stopped because Kurt picked up the water bottle on the middle of the table 
and started staring at the logo, the Asia Group logo, and said, I'm just not sure this is the right logo for this bottle. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I am in a level of detail here and a type of presentation, but it matters. I mean, I, I guess I would direct that to both of you. That kind of detail matters. Why? Why does it matter? Well, I would say you know, that, is, that is protocol. It is all of these small details, these micro moves that are intended to have a real major impact. That's why I call protocol really a superpower. We in protocol start those wheels of diplomacy in every engagement, small or large, that occurred between global leaders. And I really valued people like the wonderful, most honorable Kurt Campbell, who saw that those details would make an enormous difference. The effect of soft power and why we were investing in what we were serving, how we structured the meeting, how we rigged the room, you know, all of that, those, all of those details would affect the larger engagement. And it was always a pleasure to travel with him. I loved traveling with her. <laughs> we had, Rich, I'll just tell you one story. Caprice and I once had this meeting in Hawaii Oh no. And, and we had and we had decided to get our counterpart in Japan who loved trains. So we had bought this old train set that we'd gotten through, you know, various means. And so we had to set it up in the room. And I remember Capricia looking at me like, like there, there's something wrong with you that, that this is what you think is important. But I remember I, I will say this. I had a, a guy I worked with for a number of years. And a lot of times you realize in government that what attracts people about government is they like to be able to tell people no. It's a huge, like, like it's just, they, they really get off by foiling people's plans. You'd be surprised. You ask like, what is it that you do? Well, my job is really to stop initiatives that are percolating. And so, so I remember there was a particular country, I won't name it, that used to ask me for amazing amount of stuff, little things, little just at all hours of the day. And I would always try to take care of it. And I remember we were riding in a car with this guy and he was a little anxious, but he decided to ask me, he said, why, why do you do this? Why do you do all these little things? And I remember responding to him, I said, because someday we're gonna go to him with Sonny's body. And he had no idea what I was talking about. Of course, the idea is, that you do all these little favors, but at some point you're going to need something big from them and hopefully they'll be able to follow through. Well, I, if I could just pick up on uh, Kurt's comment on gift giving. Gift giving is one of the most extraordinary soft power tools we used in, in protocol. And, and Kurt was an extraordinary resource. We literally, whenever there was a, a trip to the region set, I was like, guys, go immediately to Kurt Campbell and ask him because he won't just say, oh, here's a little something, an idea. He will give you four choices, very detailed choices as to why choice one would be more acceptable than choice four. And he was always right. One in particular that I, I have to remark on was the gift to, the first gift that we gave to President Hu Jintao when we traveled to China for the state visit. All eyes, of course, are on this visit, very complicated visit. 
We are now trying to see if we can we can invest and reset this relationship. So, you know, what the gift was was going to be a big deal. And this wasn't just um, protocol to protocol. They had set the terms for it to be leader to leader exchange, really raising up the ante here. And we had our standard gift, which of course the White House had approved. But in addition to that, the insight that Kurt gave us was that President Hu was a fond player of the game Go. And that if we could create, ideally, or find a unique Go game, we would really hit a home run. And so what we did was we took Koa Wood from President Obama's home state, created a handmade Go board, and then through Kurt's introduction, we found the U.S. champion of Go, who Dennis went and personally, Dennis Chang, who worked in my office, personally went and visited to say, we would like to have your marbles from that Go championship, and she gave them to us. So we gave President Hu this extraordinarily personal gift, which said, we know this about you, we know this is important to you, we're creating this this bridge of friendship, this relationship with you. And I am always so privileged to see in the moments when they see these items firsthand. And his, you hate to say it, it matters. <laughs> oh, it was so beautiful. I mean, his reaction was just like, oh, he just was really, and everybody on his team, home run, home run, they kept telling me over and over again. They were so impressed with this being one of the first gifts that we had given to who. And you know, that really goes a long way in the development of that relationship. It's amazing. Capricia, I'm just curious, how many heads of state do you think you met over the course of your time? I mean, it's, it's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, I assume. It really is well over, um, well over 100. If you include both my time in the Clinton administration of eight years and having traveled with them everywhere, I mean, it's been several countries, three, four different leaders. Um, Japan, I can't even count how many prime ministers, multiple prime ministers. So, so yeah, several hundreds, actually, I would say. The reason I ask that is because this is also a fairly unlikely story, right? Because you talk about your roots, your immigrant roots, your mother was from Mexico, your father was, was from Croatia. And I think a great part of this book and a great part of your life story is the fact that this little girl who grew up, as you, as you say, as your, your dad would say, he arrived here with $4 in his pocket, which is such an immigrant expression about the number of dollars in your pocket. My dad talks about $14 in his pocket. I love it that here you are now directing the visits of foreign leaders coming to the United States and, and how our president conducts diplomacy overseas. Yes, I want to say that I was, um, I was being, um, there was a development for me to take on the chief of protocol beginning at the age of two. We lived in a, in a home that I considered a mini UN and it was in my grandmother's home, um, half of a, a duplex house. Uh, with my parents and my brother, my grandmother, and on the other side was my aunt and uncle, my two cousins. And um, in our home, there were multiple languages being spoken, so many different types of food being served. 
and so many different cultures and traditions being celebrated. It was wonderful. And I thought pretty much everybody had a house like this. Of course, I quickly learned that they don't. And that um, many people were being discriminated against as well, including my parents. My mom wasn't the creamiest of colors and my dad spoke with an incredibly thick Croatian accent. And he was called a displaced person, a dumb DP. Well, you know, you internalize that kind of discrimination, and I did. And so when I was given the opportunity, both as social secretary and as chief of protocol, to celebrate these cultures, to really embrace them, I, I went after that whole hog. I was uh, thrilled to be traveling the world with the president of the United States and, um, and the first lady in the Clinton administration, and then welcoming visitors to the White House, the People's House, and then um, doing the same as chief of protocol on a bigger, broader stage with President and Mrs. Obama and Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry. So uh, it was a, it was, it, and for my parents, oh my goodness, I'm sure you can appreciate this, Rich, but my father was unbelievably proud of me. He was so, so proud of this accomplishment. There was a quick story. When he came to the White House to visit, uh, President Clinton was phenomenal at always doing these drive-bys with our parents to say hello, make them feel really welcome. Well, my father wanted to present to him socks that my baba, my Croatian grandmother, had knit him back in Croatia and a bottle of his own homemade wine. And so um, he's standing in the diplomatic reception room waiting for the president to come by. He goes, oh, Frank, hey, how are you doing, Frank? You know, and my dad was so excited, handed him the socks. And then he went to go hand him the wine. It flipped, broke, crashed on the diplomatic reception room. Oh, no. It was red wine. Oh, and no. my dad was devastated. I mean, he literally was like, oh, he couldn't move. Here's his moment. And here's his daughter. And oh, my gosh. President Clinton is the most amazing human being, so empathetic, one of his greatest, greatest qualities. He puts an arm around my dad and he's just like, Frank, I'm just so sorry I'm not going to have any of that wine. Do you have another bottle? <laughs> Doesn't say anything else. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing moment. My father was so excited. Of course, I'll send you. My dad sends a case. I have to give the president a case. I don't even know. I mean, that wine was kind of like Slivovitz. It was so strong. <laughs> you want to kill yourself. But it was, it was such a moment in... And in appreciating everything that my parents had done for me, being immigrants to this country, being a first generation American. And um, so I was always so incredibly, maybe a tinge more honored than most to have served in those postings. Capricia, can I ask just, you know, one of the things that I was struck by, and I remember it's from the job, like Rich probably had the same thing. I, I found that some of the, you know, there's a lot of the jobs that you do at the State Department that you're, you're behind the scenes, you're preparing and stuff. But then there's that moment that you're on the stage and the events got to come off smoothly. I often, you know, watched you during those things and you were very, always gracious, but incredibly intense and always determined that things go perfectly. Did, how did you manage? Like you did that every day. I had to prepare for, you know, once every little while, but you, that was your life on a daily basis. Is it stressful? Did you find yourself like after or during like, oh my God, I can't believe how much stress I'm dealing with on a daily basis? 
yes, it was stressful, but um, the planning in and of itself, and that's really one of the, the core things that I try to convey in the book is that protocol forces you into this planning process. And the planning process uh, quells stress. I mean, it really sort of eliminates it because right before you, you're, you're put the, the moment that the doors open, you are on a track and you're following this incredibly well-detailed plan, a roadmap, if you will. And you are, you, you're because of the planning process, you, you also know that you have to be a little nimble and that things might not go according to the plan. You know, suddenly the president may decide to add an, an extra element to an event or someone speaks longer and so now the timing is off, whatever it might be. The planning process itself just, continues to allow you to go off and on the track. It also, it, planning is really optimistic. It, 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 you know that you have a goal to achieve. And so through the planning process, you are excited about a, attaining that goal. When, when you would tell me at an event, Kurt or Rich, that you know, at this people-to-people -people exchange, we need to do X, Y, and Z, or India, US economic forum, we need to make sure that we're doing, we're, our end goal is this, then I know that in that planning process, hopefully I'm going to achieve that goal for you. It's, there's, so, so yes, it can be stressful, but because you set forth this plan and protocol, it well prepares you to achieve that goal, to be optimistic about that goal, take away some of the jitters of it. And also, you know, our jobs were to create these bridges, bridges of understanding, but to influence and persuade people to our side. And through the planning process, you can do that as well. It's, it's about bringing them over to our way of thinking so that in the end, we are, we are achieving what we set forth. I like the, a lot of the hopeful stories in the book and a lot of the stuff that's like, you know, this, we, we influence this. And I agree with you, like people undersell this stuff, but it actually does matter. It really does matter. And I, and the truth is when I worked with you for all of Rich's joking, we were like-minded and we were all about like, let's make sure the event's well-prepared, comes off looking great, right flowers, all that stuff. Did you ever have just catastrophic failure? Did you ever have something like you'd be like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. This is just the worst. I had one or two of those where the guy would not stop talking and Secretary of State's desperate to get on to the next meeting and you could just feel the whole thing. Usually it happened up at the UN, but did you ever ever anything that happened that you were like, I can't believe, you know, I know you had a couple of things where you like took a little bit of a spill, but what are the things that you look back on and you just cringe thinking about it? Yeah, sure. And the UN General Assembly is chock full of just so many demands, both from, because because we were serving both the president's agenda and the secretary's agenda, all of us, right? So our, our workload is double, triple, and um, the both of them are moving at extraordinary speed. And um, there was one there was one UN General Assembly where President Obama also lopped in a meeting, thank you very much, Kurt and Rich, with ASEAN leaders. And so we had to meet with them as well. And we were at the Waldorf Astoria setting everything up in addition to family photos, in addition to bilaterals and multilaterals and him doing a speech at the UN because we were in charge of all the logistics of that as well. So we, we had set, we thought everything up correctly. And just as I'm thinking about moving on to the next event, 
one of my fellow colleagues comes running up to me and she's, and usually she's like very calm. And she's like, Krisha, we have a serious, serious problem. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, the flag of the Philippines has been incorrectly hung. I'm a flag freak. I made sure there were always six eyes on everything. And usually I'm the last set of eyes that look through it. But because again, not to make an excuse, just an explanation, I didn't look at them because we were going so quickly. So I was like devastated. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And meanwhile, I see some folks from the NSC barreling my way. The Philippines is all like up in an uproar because not only was it hung inappropriately, but also it signaled that the Philippines was at war, which we didn't which we didn't know either. And so I found the ambassador immediately, immediately made my apologies. We pulled the flag, switched it, made sure that we, we, we exchanged it. We, we hung it appropriately. Then I had to face the president who was off on one of the side, after the event, he's standing to the side in one of those blue curtain drawn areas. And he's looking down at me because he's already been told and I went through the process. I've made the apologies. I thought that was it. I was tired. I was going to get fired. That was it. And um, but very thankfully, he just looked at me and he said, uh, it's all fixed now. We're good to go, but it's not going to happen again, right, Capricia? And I said, it will never happen again. Yeah. yeah. Can I, Capricia, can I ask you, one of the things we would fight a lot about is the president's time, mm. right? So, you know, if there's a head of state coming to Washington, of course, the assistant secretary for that region, the ambassador, they would all tee up these huge schedules that would involve the president, you know, at every level. And then there would invariably be this incredible pushback, you know, saying, we're going to just do tea or, you know, the fight over tea versus lunch versus, you know, a walk around the Rose Garden. How did, how does that get resolved at the end of the day? Are you part of those conversations? We were. We were definitely a part of the um, the styling of the exchange. I would sit with the uh, president's team, uh, the scheduler, and then became deputy chief of staff, Melissa Mastromonaco, um, the scheduler, Danielle, and, and then those members of the NSC who were helping to draft that final final. And, you know, when they would ask for, when, when it was on paper, they're, they're requesting a specific type of engagement. First of all, what I always brought was what were our last engagements with that leader or with that country? So if this is the first time, you know, what did we do with previous? You want to have parity. You want to make sure you also have parity in region. You're looking at that because, and then additionally, are we going to be going there because you want to consider reciprocity? So, you know, how are they going to treat us when we go there? If they've requested a luncheon and we're offering them a tea, be careful because of what we'll receive as well in exchange. So thinking those through is really, really important. Um, but what's the ultimate, again, goal of this? If it is about getting to know one another, is it about, like the, I think you remember, you both remember President Xi's first visit to the U.S. as president. It wasn't in the Oval Office. And the Chinese were a little surprised by that, that we were going to take them to Sunnylands. And we had the Sunnylands visit. Well, once we explained to the Chinese that this was an even better visit. Um, but there were lots of objectives there. One was kind of President Obama and President Xi needed to get to know each other. And to do that, we were taking them out of this formal structure, putting them in a more relaxed atmosphere. And then we did do the walk. Here are two global leaders 
you know, getting to know each other. And we thought that's really important to convey. But then President Obama kind of threw a loop in it and he stopped. He stopped on the patio at Sunnylands and sat knee to knee with President Xi, took off his jacket, took off the tie, rolled up the shirt sleeves. It became known as the Shirt Sleeve Summit. And it was these two men talking to one another. And that was really, really important. So there are, there are lots of elements that go into the planning of these and, and thinking through exactly what needs to be done to get to what we need to achieve. And, and the determination on what's a state visit and what is not a state visit, just tell us, I, I have been in and out of government you know, for two and a half decades. I still don't know how that's determined. Well, first of all, a state visit is for a chief of state. So, for instance, in India, it is for the president, not the prime minister. The prime minister receives an official visit. And the, frankly, the only real difference is the name. And the second um, differentiation is that the chief of state gets a 21-gun salute and the official visit receives a 19-gun salute upon arrival at Andrews Air Force Base. Those are really the only differences. Wow, okay. They are the highest, highest invitation that can be extended by the President of the United States to a visiting dignitary. So that's, that's really it. And then there are, of course, the elements of the visit. There is the arrival ceremony at Andrews, arrival ceremony on the South Grounds, um, making sure that, again, there is parity there amongst all leaders, that it looks exactly the same. And then the, the business meetings in between. And then, of course, the dinner, the state dinner that evening. So just one more question, then I'll turn it over to Kurt. Um, you know, you, you talk about the importance of every detail going into some of these foreign visits and setting up the room and the food, the lighting, the height of the ceiling, the height of the chair, the name cards, everything. But what I have also noticed is especially, and Kurt will, I think, sympathize with this, going into meetings in Asia, is that you fly through the night, you get off the plane, you are invariably working through the night because you're, you're still working on the final details. And you're pretty much the only ones that have actually not slept going into the meeting. And now you're dealing with a new factor, which is just sheer fatigue, jet lag, exhaustion. And I don't know, I, sometimes I think we underestimate just how crushed people are when they actually sit down for that first bilateral meeting. <laughs> It is that's so 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 true, and there is a there, there's a differentiation between the core staff that hits the ground with the leadership and and goes, and you get in the motor motorcade and you head to those events, and then those that get to go to the hotel and crash, um, or or go do other work, but in a relaxed atmosphere, they get to put on their pajamas and they get to sort of hang out. Uh, we 
were all a part of that core staff that immediately needed to hit the ground and run and go. Uh, I had Air Force One would call my, pretend that I was going into it. Actually, they made fun of me and would say that I was going into the restroom like a, a Superman um, telephone booth and make my, my changeover with, uh, you know, curlers in my hair, changing my outfit, because you have to, as chief of protocol, certainly look appropriate for that engagement as I'm representing the president. But it was, it was grueling. It really, really was. I remember, again, back to that first visit in China, we were invited to the Diutai by President Hu for a private dinner. And it was immediately upon landing, I'm pretty sure. And so we get there and I am, you know, everybody is exhausted. People are sitting in chairs and they're collapsing and over. Well, the only saving grace I think that we had was that President who had then requested of President Obama to make a noodle. And um, I had to deliver the news after it was conveyed to me, quite surprisingly, by my counterpart, wonderful man, but who was very insistent that we were going to make this noodle. I had to lean into President Obama, who I could tell was just having a super hard time with the jet lag. I leaned and whispered, I'm like, um, Ms. President Obama, it's time for President Who would now like you to make a noodle. And he looked up at me like, what? What did you just say? And he did say a word, and I said, and it's very important to them. It's like, all right, claps his hands, stood up, stood next to President Who, side by side, bounced the dough, but everybody now is having a grand time making a noodle. Saved us in that, well, assisted, of course, in the relationship building again, but also saved us from uh, some late night jack lag. <laughs> So that's great. I'm curious, you know, we, we face a momentous election coming up. You know, there's obviously some countries in the world we're getting along fine with, but, you know, there's probably some rebuilding that has to be done and some re-knitting. And protocol and diplomatic niceties and engagement would play a role in that going forward. What would you, you know, what are you recommending? What do you think is the right way forward? How do we manage this in terms of, you know, because, uh, you know, America has taken a little bit of a hit on the international stage. We can't do much because of COVID. How, how do you manage this going forward? What's the practical recommendations that you would give? Well, we have to invest in those relationships. And one certainly, one way certainly is to improve our better understanding of who we're speaking with across that bilateral table. When we, again, travel, you know, do we know those customs? Do we understand those gestures? Can we can we improve upon how we can be more respectful in those engagements? Respect goes an enormously long way in developing a relationship. So if we can invest in them, if we can show them proper respect, both when we go there and when we welcome them here by showcasing the best of who we are in America, and it builds then these lines of trust. I mean, we've seen it, guys, again and again and again at state and in diplomacy. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to come together to iron out these, these tough issues and create some type of movement of willingness to move forward in that relationship. But before you can do any of that, you have to build 
a, a trust in one another. And I think improving our cultural IQ is one way. Respectfully showing them who we are as Americans is another through, and there's so many ways of doing that, as I said, with gifts, with food, learning more, just educating ourselves more about um, who our global partners are, I think would go certainly a long way in achieving that. Capricia, I just wonder also about whether the rules that you're talking about just now and in your book require updating periodically. And and what I mean by that is just look at kind of post-COVID, are we going to be shaking hands as much and embracing people as much, you know, whether it's on a tarmac or in a business meeting? That's the first kind of perhaps updating just on a practical basis. But secondly, maybe this is more controversial, some of the really formalistic, hierarchical rules of protocol, I think of about, again, royalty, for example, I just feel this pressure, especially from the younger generation, to blow up a lot of those rules and say, we want to be treated, we want everyone to be treated equally. And some of what you've dredged up from the 17th and 16th century maybe need to be jettisoned. I don't know if you had that tension when you were thinking about the book. Yes. Let me start with the first on, um, on those basic signs of respect and ways that we are going to engage moving forward. I've been giving that considerable thought and I've been writing about it. I'm creating my top 10 and, and distributing that to give people guidance. Because again, what, what protocol does is it, it provides clarity when there's great fog. People are wondering, how am I supposed to behave? What is my social conduct supposed to be in this new atmosphere? You know, if someone invites me to their home, am I supposed to bring my own mask? Will they have a mask? Are they requiring masks? You know, and when you can give guidance so that there is clarity in the engagement uh, before we meet, we will, we will not be shaking hands, maybe in my home or on the tarmac now, our country uh, preferred method of, of greeting might be the namaste. It might be a nod. It might be a bow. Um, there are so many cultures that we can adopt that are, that are touchless in, in showing that same sign of respect and welcoming to others. So yes, you know, clar- providing clarity in our greetings, in the f- ways in which we welcome people to our home, in the way that we are now dining, you know, making sure that if someone does come to your home, assuring them that you have a proper table setting, how that food will be served, all of that gives people assurances and comfort then in having the engagement. And to address your second, the second half of your question, Rich, yes, protocol does develop over time. We are changing these rules just as we're speaking now. And I don't know if or when we'll ever return to the way we usually did things. It may be we will evolve and keep evolving forward. But the basics of what protocol provides is that standardization of, of how you are supposed to engage. And if it becomes the case, and I don't know if it will go so far as where royals will be treated like everyday citizens, I'm, I, I kind of worship Her Majesty, so this is a tough one for me, but it is it can come there. And, and if it does, protocol will help give those guidelines on how you reset those expectations. That's great. Krisha, thank you. You've been terrific to be with us today. Take one more moment. Tell us again the title for our listeners and viewers. What's the title of the book? 
protocol, the power of diplomacy and how it can work for you. Guys, and it's terrific and available through Amazon or wherever you get your books. Rich, over to you. Yeah, Capricia, that was awesome. Thank you. And the book is fantastic. And so thank you very much, not only for today, but for all of your years of outstanding service. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Capricia online on our website at theasiagroup.com in addition to downloading the podcast at the regular platform. So thanks, Capricia. Thanks, Kurt. Stay safe and healthy, and we will see you next time.